Uh, well, this is our way. I'd like to start off with some prayer. Any prayer requests that we need to discuss? You guys, uh, I would appreciate it. If you pray for me, I'll be out of town for a few weeks, starting on Tuesday. Oh, really? Where are you going? I'll be going to Georgia, the country. Wow. Uh, exciting partnership going on there. That's exciting. Seems like the news is always full of uh, depressing mm-hmm. stories about suffering and how fallen the world is. So that's always on my mind. Well, if you could pray for our um, daughter and son-in-law that when they go to their new home, well, that they're moved to Florida transition to a new, new environment would be guided by the Lord mm. and that once they're there that they will be drawn into some sort of church fellowship good good Christian friends yeah thank you it's a lot but the Lammies live in Florida. Uh, obviously, it's a big state, uh, so maybe not the same area, but yeah. Do they? Yes, that's awesome. Yeah. Great. So uh, maybe it's the Lord the same will town. use that's that. Fantastic! I should have visited them while I was there. All right, this is great. I'm so glad I said something. I know. Let's go ahead and mark that down as a praise report as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, if there are no other requests, uh, I'd like to uh, pray for us. And it, so I'm, uh, I'm trying to be a little bit faster today. That doesn't mean we shouldn't have input. I want input from everybody. But uh, I've had this prayer on the back of the outline for two weeks that I've taught. This is the third time I put it there. I would like to pray as a group at the end. And this just gives us topics where we can pray and the group can participate um, so I do want to make you aware of that. And my, my goal is to finish the lesson with about 15 minutes left. So around, yeah, I know, laughable. We'll see where the Lord takes us. Uh, so, uh, let's go ahead and pray. And then, um, we have a short song to sing. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father. We come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and your Son, who has redeemed us and and brought us to you. Uh, We can only do this because of the power of the Spirit that has convicted us of faith and continues to sanctify us, uh, bringing us closer home to you day by day. We ask that you would open our hearts and minds to hear from your word. Uh, help me to present your word accurately. Uh, help us all have, to have the humility to question our beliefs uh, in light of what we have been given and to not add our own version of events, um, but also give us grace 
to disagree in humility uh, when these issues are not primary issues. <clears throat> pray for the training event that I will embark upon soon and uh, pray for my family while I'm gone. You'll look after them. And pray for Keith and Joan's daughter and son-in-law with their big move coming up. And uh, We know that their spiritual health is in your hands and we trust you to guide them along uh, to do what would please you. Uh, take us now to your word and help us to rejoice in uh, whatever we find there, whether it's trial or blessing. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I'd like to stand and sing a short song, the doxology. You know it, but in case you don't know it, it's on the back of your uh, outline here. At the very top on the back page. We were meeting in secret, sharing a couple of scraps of... Uh, letters and scrolls that we had with us. Um, something else I've been meaning to do for a couple of weeks is uh, start off with some jokes. I always forget to do that. So uh, a while back we had a lesson on, I think, was it postmodernism that we talked about, Harry? Like some philosophy stuff came up. So how many existentialists does it take to change a light bulb? Just two, one to bemoan the darkness while the other redefines something else as light. <laughs> and then there's a bunch of, uh... oh yeah, how many Marxists does it take to change a light bulb? None, the light bulb defines, the light bulb contains the seeds of its own revolution. A bunch of other categories there that I don't think, think are that funny, but uh, some Christian ones here too. How many charismatics does it take to change a light bulb? Just one, their hands are already in the air anyway. So, easy, fast, too. Um, how many Calvinists, uh oh How many Calvinists does it take to change a light bulb? It's a trick question. Any good Calvinist knows only God can change a light bulb. Uh, there's one here about Baptists where they're like, but we don't change. I actually think that's true about most, even non-denominational churches, we all tend to fight change. Uh, how many Pentecostals? It's actually ten. One to change the bulb and nine to pray against the spirit of darkness. <laughs> yeah. How many TV evangelists? Stepping on a lot of toes here. One, but for the message of light to continue, send in your donation. Uh, there was one more here I wanted to... Oh, yeah, how many dispensationalists? I feel like this is a topic that comes up a lot. How many dispensationalists does it take to change the light bulb? It takes two. One to change the bulb and one to keep the promises to the old bulb. Yeah, yeah, a lot of, uh, there's plenty more there. Uh, it's good to laugh at ourselves and others. Um, so today we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we're continuing with the second half of verse 5, second part of verse 5. So one thing I'd like to encourage you to do, and one thing the lesson does a little bit, is if you have the ESV audio or some kind of audio Bible, Start at 1 Corinthians 1 and listen all the way up to 13. As we've said in previous lessons, what tends to happen with this passage in particular is we take it out 
of context and we use it, you know, maybe it's a tattoo or use it at a wedding. That's not necessarily bad. It's good to have scripture as part of our lives. But I think the epistles and the letters that Paul wrote in particular, if you, if you start at the beginning, he really lays the foundation for why he's saying what he's saying here in chapter 13. And we'll get a little bit of that today in the lesson. But uh, I'd like to start uh, with reading scripture. This message is called Love's Insistence. So let's start at 1 Corinthians 13, chapter 1. And I'm only going to read through, oh, sorry, verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 7. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So here we are with love's insistence. Um, love often does insist, in my experience. Um, if you have anyone that you love, you've probably insisted <laughs> at one time or another on something. Yeah. Um, so I, I do find it... Uh, just this, this lesson fits in the same broad, broadly in the same category as all the other parts of this lesson. It's easy to oversimplify scripture when you approach it because we've heard it so many times. But this lesson, like the others, I've found um, there's a lot to be gained and um, there's a lot of humility to be gained along the way. So um, if you haven't heard the other parts of this chapter, they're, they're all on the sermon audio page. At the top of the outline, I have the, uh, the ESV version, and it's just five, so it starts with or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. But then the King James, sometimes I like to look back at King James. Uh, there was a 1599 translation that I like too, but it was pretty close to the King James. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. So uh, and to insist on your own way, you know, at one time, a few hundred years ago, that would have been maybe, the words would have been to seek your own way um, or to seek your own, maybe your own gain or your own benefit. But the main, the main lesson I'd like to... Uh, arrive at for this, for today's uh, time we have together is love insists upon the righteous way instead of its own way. So I really want to key in on that word when we, when we see that love does not insist on its own way. Love may insist, but it does not necessarily insist on its own way. 
So a little bit of background. The Corinthians were blessed with many gifts. We've talked about this in some previous lessons, so we don't have to spend a lot of time here. But sometimes a blessing can lead to a disproportionate sense of self, which I think is a component of this self-insistence. Um, so if you're someone who is well-gifted or gifted in a particularly uh, visible way, healings, tongues, prophecies, there might be a sense of self that comes with that. Uh, and that, I think that is maybe a component of why Paul is telling us love does not insist on its own way. So ironic, isn't it? Maybe wonder why things go badly with us. Yeah. Yeah, um, but I, I also want to realize that uh, I, as one who often insists on, insists on my own way, um, and maybe you guys are in that category too, I wanted to talk about some reasons why we might insist on our own way. Maybe understand, let's understand the problem. It's easy to, you know, take the scripture, application. Okay, let's just stop insisting on our own way. Um, but I think we have to understand the problem a little bit better. Why might we insist on our own way? Well, because my way is the right way. Yeah, like, I'm right. And if we're right, we're going to think like everyone needs to do what we want in that I'm right. I think, I think we're going to make another list. Insisting. Uh, I'm right. I feel like there's a lot more in there. Why, 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 why might we be right? We might be right because we recognize the scriptural way of approaching the specific instance and we're intent on conforming to it. Okay. Could be, could be scripture. Got my proof text. I'm right. I've got my proof text to prove it. So, don't need any other denominations but the one I have. To be honest, that can be abused. I mean, you can quote scripture and then have a heart that's, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Could you're be manipulated. You're all going there, but my point was, yeah. it can also be right. legit. Yeah. Well, I agree. I don't disagree with that at all. But, yeah. But There's I want no... to make sure we, we don't just go, oh, we, the scripture's always, our, our, Standing for scripture is always perfect and we're it's always the right way. So well, could, no, we can manipulate. It could be manipulative. Yeah. But it could not be. It could be. Yeah, it could be both ways for sure. It could be righteous. Right. Why else are we right? Legalism. Oh, yeah. I'm righteous. Therefore, I am right. I've, I follow the rules. Maybe there's a little bit of self, back to that sense of self, self righteousness in there. Um, there are some examples later in the lesson. People who are, because they were self-righteous, they thought they were right, they insisted on their own way. Um, experience. I've dealt with this problem before. So this problem must be the same as all the other problems or that other problem I dealt with. Um, Maybe thinking, we'd be ashamed to admit it today, but thinking back to the New Testament, maybe background, like ethnic background. I think they dealt with that a lot. We do too. We just don't. You mean appealing to tradition? Uh, appealing to cult- ethnicity. ethnicity, culture. Yeah, I think, culture. yeah. 
maybe that's a good way to bring it into the modern. I mean, I'm thinking like the Good Samaritan. Everyone did the right thing by avoiding the, uh, you know, the, the unclean or the, the, the socially lower person. They stepped onto the other side of the road. Um, why else are we right? Or why else do we insist? These are reasons we're right. Even if we're not right, our pride can get in the way. So if we start on oh. a stance, even if, you know, maybe we recognize we're not right, our pride won't let us yeah. give that up. We dig ourselves in and then we right. have to forge forward. I feel like we just need like a whole other board right there to just write all, all the prideful stuff. Uh, pride, yeah. Um, one thing from a, like from a work perspective, safety. I feel like we throw safety around a lot. I don't know what the like church context of safety would be, but um, you know, we, we hi- maybe hiding behind, that might be another version of legalism, hiding behind some other apparent reason. Uh, but maybe parents insist because of safety. We don't want our children to get hurt, so we insist. And that could sometimes boil over into uh, an altercation where even if you started off right, a lot of times you're both wrong by the end of the argument. Um, any other reasons we insist? Maybe some more will come up as we go along. Uh, so what are the reasons love can insist on the righteous way? I think we were already kind of getting there. Um, if Scripture, if we're accurately and rightly using Scripture, not just accurately using it, but using it with the right spirit, uh, you know, love, love doesn't, this, this lesson isn't that love never insists, it's that love doesn't insist on its own way. It insists, it insists on God's way or the righteous way. So can love insist righteously without being like these things? The Lord does. Okay, good place to start. Yeah, God gets to insist on his own way. And some, because of who God is, his own way isn't the thing that Scripture's talking about here. So special category. Um, Well, it's just that love is not self-focused, but other-focused. So that's okay. why God can insist on his own way, because it is the way, the truth, and the life for yeah. the good of others. Yep, there's an external standard. God knows it well. We fail to live by this, to take, take this internal standard completely uh, as our own way. So when we insist on God's way, um, so if you're correcting another brother or sister, and you're pointing them back to Scripture, insisting on God's way. We're not insisting on our own way. We'll just put on, most of these were about our own way, I think. Focused on others. Yeah, insisting on your own way is focused on yourself. Even if you have good reasons. But uh, what's the ultimate purpose of love? Just love. (laughs) We just want to love. Which we do. I don't mean to be uh, crass. 
But it's for God's glory, right? right. The, pur- the ultimate purpose of love is to give God glory. He's the one who invented love. He is love. So, I'd like to get into 1 Corinthians 10, chapter 10, verse 24. And I'll start reading at uh, 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. If any one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage but that the advantage of many, but that of many, that they may be saved. I could probably spend uh, hours in counseling with the phrase, just as I try to please everyone and everything I do. Yeah. Um, I don't think this means that Paul's chief aim is to please people. It means that he's trying to avoid offense. In, in seeking the truth, in preaching the truth, he's trying to avoid being offensive uh, unnecessarily. Although the gospel is kind of inherently offensive, so there comes a point where you might have to choose, do I tell the truth or do I avoid offense? So in this uh, 1 Corinthians 10, keying in on 24, where he says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Um. Paul has addressed various types of Christian behavior, public and private. Specifically, he's talking about eating this meat that's been offered to idols. The bottom line for me here is that Christians should always act in a way that advances the gospel. And to see that, we need to go down to verse 34 that we also read. That is that is a typographical error. We'll come back to that. I think it's contained there in verse 33. That they may be saved. Everything he's doing is so that the gospel can go forward. So uh, this left me with uh, the good of his neighbor. I wrote down the question in my notes. What is a neighbor? Um, Kind of looking into the recent... uh, What's the name of the What's the name of the YouTube guy? What is a woman? Matt Walsh. Yeah. I 
think we can rightly ask, what is a neighbor? And people have asked that before. We could probably spend a whole other series of lessons on defining who our neighbor is. It was a problem in the Old Testament, a problem in the New Testament. Um, What's the original Greek? What is a neighbor? I don't know. Someone close to you. In family? Or in proximity. Just yeah. the, those with whom you would interact uh, in any course of yeah. existence. Yeah, just walking about. That's my neighbor over there. But back to the legalism point, and the reason I ask what is a neighbor is because there was this whole effort to say, well, if you're not my neighbor, I don't have to worry about you. And a lot of the uh, Jewish rabbinical system leading up to Jesus' time was all about, like, instead of expunging sin, finding sin, confessing sin, expunging sin, trusting God, it was about creating self-righteousness through following the rules. But when you try to follow the rules, you find out that's really difficult. So it's easier to change the rules. If I just change who my neighbor is, then that allows me to be hurtful or hateful to certain people. Um, the Good Samaritan answers the question, who is our neighbor? Yes. Yeah. I think that that uh, goes to modern times would be uh, redlining laws uh, for neighborhoods. So what redlining was is people would basically draw lines on maps and if you were of this ethnicity they wouldn't sell you a house in this neighborhood. You can't be my neighbor. That's right. I don't have to worry about you. You're so not like my neighbor. You're separated. You're separating yourself. Yeah. And there's a lot of uh, that causes issues because of, you're supposed to not come to a certain group of people. You're supposed to go to the world mm-hmm. as a Christian. Yes. Uh, yeah, if you, if you truly understand the fall, then you start to really quickly realize... Uh, you can't make yourself more righteous by defining who's not your neighbor. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what the Pharisees were attempting to do. Mm-hmm. If you've truly accepted your utter lack of righteousness, all that other stuff just doesn't matter anymore. Um, and I think there's a little bit, uh, going back to Corinthians 13, it, this will get addressed in later lessons, but Paul tells us uh, in verse 9, now we know in part, when he says all knowledge, tongues will cease, Knowledge will pass away, which is tough for uh, Reformed Christians to hear because we're all about the knowledge, right? Uh, Now we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So there's this uh, comparison to maturity from being a child to being an adult. And um, Christian maturity as we are more sanctified and we understand how fallen we are, uh, the mature Christian is the one who stops creating these, you know, meaningless divisions. If only I can avoid that sin, then I'll be righteous. If only I can avoid that situation. Um, But the mature Christian starts to see that uh, there's this higher idea of love. And that's, I'd like to rewind a little bit to chapter 8. 8, 9, and 10 build up to this part that we just read in chapter 10. So in chapter 8, just a quick summary of it, 
Paul contrasts mere knowledge with the higher idea of love. Just to know things isn't enough. Christians must not violate their own consciences when it comes to Christian liberty, and we saw that in the part of the town that we read. Loving and preferring other Christians will help us avoid sin and bring glory to God. Uh, so rather than binning out these sins so that we can kind of just so carefully avoid each one, um, the mature Christian is able to see that, that uh, we have to love and prefer others and submit to one another. Um, that builds well into chapter 9, uh, where Paul and Barnabas, they talk about their rights. Sometimes Christians insist on their own rights. So in chapter 9, Paul and Barnabas, Paul declares, we've given up our rights in the name of the gospel because we don't want our, they were specifically talking about their right to be paid or uh, make, make a living off of the spiritual work they were doing. But they wanted to eliminate all stumbling blocks. Paul insists on his right to make the gospel the main thing. He's willing to give up all those other rights in order to focus on the gospel. He even says, I've become a servant of all. I've become all things to all people. Trained and disciplined in his message and in his personal behavior. So Paul's reason to be disciplined in his personal behavior wasn't to arrive at some kind of sense of uh, Christian perfection. It was to avoid offending other people and damaging the gospel message. And then in chapter 10, it, it's strange how often this comes up. The Corinthians seem to be doing pretty well in a lot of ways, but he has to tell them, flee from idolatry. They have all these gifts and all this stuff going on. Flee from idolatry. Learn from the example of Old Testament believers. He even says, most of them did not please God. That was, uh, seeing that in this context was alarming to me. You know, one of those parts of Scripture that you kind of breeze over, not, not really a memory verse, it's chapter 10, verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. He's talking about the ones he rescued from Egypt, his own people. With most of them, God was not pleased. So, not a new problem. We cannot partake at two tables. Uh, Paul uses, in chapter 10, Paul uses what was going on in Egypt and in the wilderness to tell the church of today or the church of his day, uh, you can't have both. You can't keep doing things the way you used to do them. You can't keep those, that sense of self, ethnic rivalry, um, meat offered to idols, um, insisting on your own rights. You can't keep doing that and be at God's table. We are united at God's table alone. We cannot partake at two tables. So I really benefited from I used, I used the listening app to just listen from chapter 1 all the way forward to chapter 13. I really benefited from that because uh, it helps you have a context of when he talks about how great love is and how, how love helps us prefer others, uh, he says it's even better than all these spiritual gifts. And I know we've made that point in previous lessons, um, but I don't think it can be said enough that all that stuff's going to pass away, and I, I don't want to steal from forthcoming lessons. We'll spend plenty of time on those. So, uh, who is my neighbor? Uh, maybe we should be saying, who isn't my neighbor? That's a good question. Yeah. 
and not with the purpose of excluding. We should be asking that question inclusively. I mean, with, the, with a, an eye to determining where we, where we are lacking love or towards whom we are lacking love. Yes, exactly. Who isn't our neighbor? I think that's a good one. Right. That's a good question to explore. Because if someone's not our neighbor, we come back to this list over here. I can insist on my own way. Um, I do it to my children a lot because of my spiritual authority. Um, I actually insist on my own way, you know, down in this category of pride, safety. I'm right. I'm more mature. I've experienced this before. I might actually be right, but the way I'm presenting that authority should be over here. Hey, this is how God wants us to do it. So even our children who are believers in their own right, uh, we have to treat them like our neighbor. So uh, quick, that, just a quick summary, building up to chapter 10, which feeds into chapter 13. I'd like to uh, talk about some examples of our own way. I have a few there, but if you have some on your mind and you haven't looked at the list yet, feel free. Who can we think of that insisted on their own way? Like in the Bible, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, let's not... Not people today. Strange fire. No. Oh, strange fire. I don't think I have that one on the list. Nadab and Abihu. Good job. Leviticus 10. Yeah, it's just on their own way of worshiping God. I'm going to add that to my notes here. Strange fire. Anybody else? Many people say Leviticus isn't exciting. <laughs> Riveting. <laughs> Anybody else ideas of, or if you see one there that you want to discuss, I put a few, I put several on the list just to kind of get the discussion going. Well, we have uh, Onan in chapter 38 of Genesis. He insists on his own way by refusing to get Tamar pregnant. Right. Yeah, he doesn't uh, fulfill his familial duties to uh, create offspring for his brother. Who is my brother? Am I my brother's keeper? Who is my neighbor? Anybody else? Well, yeah. The whole, the whole Bible is filled with dreadful judgments on people, individuals, and groups who insisted on their own way. Yes. Back to that Corinthians 10, verse 5. With most of them, God was not pleased. He's talking about his own people that he's saving. Even when it seems right. Who was the poor guy who caught the ark that was being transported by the ox? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Can't touch that. I know what's right. Who are the guys who got swallowed up in the wilderness in a gigantic cavern? Sons of, sons of Korah. Their brothers for... I, I don't think that was, I know that's right. I think he just automatically responded. I'm going to catch that. He, yeah, but he knew. Uh, but he knew how were they transporting the ark? Sure. Poles. They were on poles. There was, they were supposed to be. But they weren't. And he was not even of the tribe that was commissioned to transport. Right. Doing the right thing the wrong way. Um, yeah, I think you could find so many examples of doing things your own way, the wrong way. Uh, Saul was a big one that came to mind. Um, well, the nation of Israel. Yeah, the whole nation. Mostly time, time and again. Including every king. 
And, and it, no king, no king of Israel, no matter how highly held, can be excluded from this category of Old well, Testament examples. Your conversation about it was God's people that He had rescued. And we have so many people say, if we've been alive when Christ was here, we've been seeing the miracles, uh-huh. our faith would be so much stronger. These people saw all that. They, they did. They really were saved. And every day they had food provided for them, and they went, yuck, I don't like that food anymore. They did. I mean, wow. uh, Yeah, so, I mean, just, just to make sure we don't leave anything out here, um, if people listening back to the lesson, the garden, we're insisting on our own way. Sodom and Gomorrah, Insisting on our own way. Prophets were sent. Declarations were made. Jonah, I didn't give a chapter because it's the whole book. Insisting on, did, he didn't want, he insisted on his own way by not wanting to call people to repentance. Yeah. I think we do that sometimes too. Israel in Egypt and in the wilderness is constantly insisting on their own way. I wish we could go back to Egypt. They had cucumbers. <laughs> They had they had they had fresh produce. Yeah. Lots white. The produce was so fresh. <laughs> Lots white. Yeah. Insisting on their own way. Saul. I keyed in on Saul. Uh, David and Solomon are also listed here. Saul in particular because he was kind of like, yeah, we finally have a king, and things looked like they were going well. But he made that decree that no one can eat, and then his own son ate. Mm-hmm. They told him, don't make the decree, mm-hmm. and then he didn't enforce the decree to, to put to death anyone who eats. Um, and then uh, he didn't uh, destroy the king and all. Instead of destroying everything, he kept the good stuff. Um, David, I was thinking specifically of David and Bathsheba insisting on his own way, and then you know the lies and the cover up. Solomon uh, built high places to please his many wives. He built like within spitting distance from Jerusalem. He's like, oh, we got a hilltop here. Let's you can have that. God has His temple. Your God can have this temple over here. Let's move on to some uh, New Testament examples of insisting on your own way. The rich young ruler came to mind. And Steve, you said we, we often tell ourselves, if I'd been there, I would have done it different. But we would, in reality, we would have the same response that we have today. When Jesus says, give up everything and follow me, we would go, but I like my stuff. Like the rich young ruler did. Ananias and Sapphira, um, they insisted on their own way. They didn't even have to sell the house. They, that was a voluntary act. But they lied about the amount. And then uh, in Matthew 7, when people say, Lord, Lord, we did all this stuff in your name. He says, depart from me. I did not know you. Doing it our own way. Judas. Yes. With Jesus. Yeah. For years. So, point five, God's way. And even... And even repented in his own way. That is to say, he didn't repent with godly repentance. His, his was a, an ungodly sorrow. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. That even his repentance was his own. Uh, and you see that today. Um, you mean by killing himself? Or? Yeah, and, and, not, and not truly confessing his sin to, to his Lord. Uh-huh. Trying to satisfy the law's demands. Um, growing up in the church, uh, a lot of Americans, we have kind of this 
I've heard it called a Christ-haunted background, meaning everybody, everybody knows something about the church just enough to maybe be confusing or dangerous. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people have this like, oh, I've got to deal with God. You know, me and God, we're, we got terms. I remember an HVAC repairman uh, that my dad was working with at the church saying something like that. He, he had some sense of guilt being at the church, knowing that he had attended church in however long. And, uh, well, I've got to deal with God. And uh, that's his own way. That's not God's way. God's terms are clear. Um, so point five here, God's way. Love is characterized by seeking the good of others which allows Christians to submit to one another in love. Oh man, typo, I forgot to put my verse reference in there. Bonus trivia for anyone who looks that up. You get a pat on the back. Um, we cannot Is insist on our Ephesians own way. Ephesians 5 there or something in 1 Corinthians 13? Uh, Ephesians 5. Okay. Yeah. 1,000 gold stars. Not fair. Are you <laughs> seminary trained. Uh, so... We cannot insist on our own way, but God can. Why? Well, turns out he owns everything, and it's all his anyway. Um, Because of his character and his attributes, his righteousness, God is righteous. Insisting on his own way is not separate from insisting on the righteous way. Unlike us, when we insist on our own way, our own way is not the righteous way. But God, his own way and the righteous way are the same thing, and we have that reference to Psalm 11. This brings me to an idea about irresistible grace. Irresistible grace insists, it compels. Uh, God insists on the righteous way and his own way when the Holy Spirit calls believers. His, His call doesn't come back empty. And then uh, an example of ultimate submission and love not doing things our own way. Not my will, but yours be done. Uh, and this, this is reflected in the Trinity when even parts of the Trinity submit to other parts of the Trinity. Um, there's a little bit of application I wanted to have with this, uh, these charts at the bottom. So sometimes we... I've been listening to... Uh, Strong and weak, Andy Crouch, and he says that sometimes we try to solve problems on like a like kind and firm on a two on like just a sideways axis, or it'll be like uh, authority. The book is about authority and vulnerability, authority, vulnerability, but this creates a false dilemma because sometimes you can have. Both, so that's why he creates the, instead of a sideways chart, he does what's called a two by two, and he puts them on, each axis represents a different attribute, that way you can have some or all or none of both attributes at once. So the parenting one is a good example, you know, firmness on the vertical axis, and then warmth on the left and right axis, and depending on the amount of each you have, it creates four different categories. Kind, indulgent, absent, and authoritarian. So uh, that's kind of the intro. What the book is really about is the flourishing chart, where you've got authority on one axis and vulnerability on the other. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I got the category names wrong um, last time. I used an example name instead of the actual name that Crouch uses. So forgive me for that. 
But he creates these four categories, and he says we're always, the top right one is flourishing, and we should always be part of the Christian dilemma is always trying to move from wherever we're at into the top right category flourishing. But the sin in us wants to go more like toward authoritarianism um, because we think of the exploiting, the category number four. When you have full authority but no vulnerability, uh, he calls that, that quadrant exploiting. And I think sometimes when we think of true authority, maybe because of the, the fallen nature of the world or because um, just you know, bad examples that we've had, we think of true authority as this like unassailable, powerful um, quadrant four. But Crouch's message is that really it's flourishing, that God, using God as the example, God is ultimately authoritative, but also uh, vulnerable to a degree, meaning he allows, he allows us to question him. And he doesn't like immediately squash us. He, he came to us in the form of a man. Uh, he submitted himself uh, to suffering. So just when we think of this thing, love, it's easy to be on just the left and right, love or no love. But really there's, there's more to it than that. Um, I, haven't, I haven't built that chart out for myself yet. But instead of just thinking in terms of, is this loving or is this unloving? Um, the way we love and in what context we love creates all these dilemmas that we've talked about in this lesson. Uh, if, we love, if we love without holding others accountable, then we become you know, kind of a pushover or an enabler. Um, if, we, if all we have is like this stern love, probably that parenting chart is the best way to express it. If, if our love is always coming out in like rules and corrections and... Um, you know, very little grace, then we're more of an authoritarian category. Um, but that's something I'm working through that has really had a lot of good application lessons to me that um, I don't have to choose between being loving and enforcing what I think is right. I can do, I can do both at the same time. I'm not saying it's easy. If it were easy, we probably wouldn't be in Sunday school right now. Right? Um, but... Uh, I would like to make a comment. I would avoid the language of vulnerability in speaking about God himself. Uh, the divine nature is not vulnerable, technically speaking, because that means it is open to be wounded uh, and hurt. The divine nature is not. Uh, it is simple and it is without hearts and passions. But if we're saying, if we're taking warmth on the left side there, yes, obviously. God, our Father in Heaven, is perfectly, eternally, infinitely affectionate towards His people, and He does invite us to, uh, as we see in many examples in the Psalms, ask Him questions and register our, our confusion. Uh, now, we, being the creatures that we are, and fallen and finite, yeah, we ought to have greater vulnerability. Uh, so when we do talk about vulnerability in God, yes, I, I think right to have in mind that we're talking about the human nature of Christ, who really is most vulnerable in that he allowed himself to be wounded on the cross and killed. Um, so there's, there's that. And also hurt in his spirit by people he loved. Yes. Betrayed. Yes. Foolish. Yes. Yes. But this is where a proper understanding of the one person and two natures of Christ is very important because we don't want to say that God himself 
is vulnerable, that he is um, moving about by the, uh, the actions, that he is even moved by the actions of his people. Uh, he is not moved by. He's the one who moves people. I think there's a, I think there's to the, in order to make us understand who he is, there's the, sometimes scripture gives anthropomorphic traits to God. Yes, well, the whole Bible is anthropomorphic. It's speaking of the divine in human language. So right. you can't escape it. Right. And we're not supposed to escape it. Well, um, any final thoughts on love's insistence? Yeah. Yeah. You can you can have the best of intentions and not not do as well as you would love in a long way. I mean, yeah. This, you're you're showing us what fatherhood or parenting would be is a prime example of that. I think uh, I'll just use First Corinthians thirteen eight. Love never ends. I think that has. We'll, we'll get to that in the coming weeks. But it, it has uh, depths that we have not fathomed. Um, so, uh, well, I, I would like to have a brief time of prayer. Uh, there is a prayer on the back. And, um, you know, if the, if the bell rings and you need to go get your children, please excuse yourself. Um, but uh, to use this prayer, we'll, we'll begin praying. And I'll, I'll read the parts that are not bolded. And then uh, I'll leave a, a few moments of silence where additional prayers can be offered if we want to pray together. And then at the end, uh, I'll say, Lord, in your mercy, and the group can respond with, hear our prayer. So let's pray together. Almighty and ever-living God, we are taught by your holy word to offer prayers and supplications and to give thanks for all people. We humbly ask you mercifully to receive our prayers, inspire continually the universal church with the spirit of truth, unity, and concord, and grant that all who confess your holy name may agree in the truth of your holy word and live in unity and godly love. Pray for our brothers and sisters and members of the congregation who are suffering in their body. Lord, for churches uh, in our community uh, where we have small disagreements, please bring us unity with them in your name. Lord, for our unsaved loved ones, we beg your, your indulgence that you would draw them to yourself. Lord, in your mercy, hear, hear our, our prayer. prayer. We pray that you will lead the nations of the world in the way of righteousness and so guide and direct their leaders, especially President Biden, members of Congress, our governor, state-level leaders, that your people may enjoy the blessings of freedom and peace. Grant that our leaders may impartially administer justice, uphold integrity and truth, restrain wickedness and vice, and protect true religion and virtue. Lord, we're inundated with the turmoil of upcoming elections. Help us to lean on you to uh, 
look to you to lead and to uh, follow our biblically informed consciences and to maintain uh, a spirit of love and unity even when we disagree. Lord, we also lift up uh, politicians who've taken a strong stand against unrighteous practices, uh, specifically abortion, but any number of other unrighteous practices. We ask that that they would be blessed for uh, trying to do the right thing. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Give grace, Heavenly Father, to all church leaders, elders, and deacons, especially to our pastor, that by their lives and teaching they may proclaim your true and life-giving word and rightly and duly administer your holy sacraments. And to all your people, give heavenly grace, especially to this congregation, that with reverent and obedient hearts we may hear and receive your holy word and serve you in holiness and righteousness all the days of our lives. Leaders are real people with the real challenges that everyone has. Lord, we are uh, sinners in need of forgiveness and guidance and help from you. I pray your special blessing upon leadership here, Lord, that you uh, enable us to act more Christ-like in our daily walk and in our leadership. Lord, we lift up our pastor as he's about to deliver your word, that you would speak through him. Uh, let all the attributes of yourself show forth in your word. and Use the spirit to convict us of the truth. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Prosper, we pray, all those who proclaim the gospel of your kingdom throughout the world and strengthen us to fulfill your great commission, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that you have commanded. Lord, I pray that their kingdom will flourish in the lands that are currently under war and persecution, that the Christians there will be strengthened and given great courage and power to proclaim the gospel to people who are particularly in need of it. Father, help us to live a life that displays the gospel and draws people to hear it. To ask, you know, why are you different? Why are the circumstances as good as they are? And to give you um, the glory for it all. Lord, we thank you for your gospel. And we pray your blessing upon us as we share that with others. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We ask in your goodness, O Lord, to comfort and sustain all who in this transitory life are in trouble, sorrow, need, sickness, or any other adversity, and the public servants who face danger and austerity. Lord, we especially lift up uh, Will Rimmer and Connor Aubrey and ask that your uh, hand would be with them to protect and guide. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. 
We remember before you all your servants who have departed in this life in your faith and fear that your will for them may be fulfilled. And we ask that you give us grace to follow the good examples of all your saints that we may share in your heavenly kingdom. Lord, we think of our brothers and sisters who've uh, gone on. Uh, we thank you for their lives of faithfulness and your faithfulness to them to keep your word and keep your promises. We ask that uh, we would be encouraged to know that, that you will keep your promise to us. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Amen. Heavenly Father, grant these our prayers for the sake of Jesus Christ, our only mediator and advocate who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.